If money affects your life in any way, Money Making Sense will talk about it. Be financially healthy, wealthy, and wise. Here's your host, Heather Kelly. Welcome to Money Making Sense, the show that talks about all things money. Today, we're talking about inflation and are these rising interest rates that the Fed is doing, is that really helping? Joining me today is Phil Dean. He is the chief economist at Chem C. Gardner Policy Institute, and also Susan Spears, who is the CEO of Utah Association of Certified Public Accountants. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be back. Phil, I am going to talk with you, Mr. Chief Economist here. So we just had some numbers come out as we're recording this. According to the White House, this last month, we actually had zero inflation. Is this true? So it is true on a month-over-month basis. So these were the July numbers that were recently released. And in July, compared to June, we didn't see inflation in the Consumer Price Index, which is the inflation index that people commonly refer to. So on a year-over-year basis, that was an 8.5%. So prices are definitely higher than they were a year ago, but they're level to where they were a month ago. But a month ago, when the numbers came out, we were at 10% inflation. It was that month over month, or was that for the year over year? No, that that would be a year over year number. So last month from May to June, that was a 1.3% increase monthly. So it's definitely encouraging that it's at 0% on a month-over-month basis. But for the U.S. as a whole, that was a little over 9%. Here in the mountain region, we were at 9.9%, so almost at 10%. Does this mean, since we didn't increase our inflation anymore last month compared to June, does that mean that we have plateaued on inflation? We're just going to hold steady for a little bit until it goes down, or... Are we going to see inflation go up again? That's an interesting question. Uh, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about that. That drop in inflation is largely driven by gas prices dropping from where they were, you know, over $5 a gallon here in Utah before, a little bit below that now. And so those gas prices are contributing, and that doesn't have a lot to do with uh, the Federal Reserve's interest rate increases. I think there's still uncertainty about that going forward. Are gas prices going to continue to drop? Because that drop in gas prices was offset by increases in other elements of the economy. You just brought up something uh, really interesting. You said gas prices don't have much to do with the Fed's decision to raise interest rates. So it sounds like we have two different things going on that are affecting our pocketbooks. We have interest rates rising, which affects how much we pay on our credit cards every month and also mortgages. But that is completely separate from if I want to go fill up my tank of gas. Yeah. And it's I think over the long term, there are some interrelationships, but especially short term up and down uh, impacts aren't directly controlled by interest rates. They're controlled by international events. In this case, the Biden administration has been letting oil out of the, the reserve that we have in our country. And so, so that's kind of a short-term thing that you can't do forever, but it has provided some short-term relief on gas prices. I don't want to say there's never any relationship between interest rates and the gas price drop, but especially over the short term, that's the case. Susan, what are you seeing? Can you tell a big difference from June to July where our inflation didn't go up anymore? 
I don't know that I can tell a big difference, but you know, we talk about the gas prices, which I, I agree with you, Phil, as far as the interest rate impact, not such a huge part of that. I do have concern with pulling down our gas reserve, but we also have the grocery our food costs that we need to be concerned about as well, because they seem to be going up more quickly or a higher pace than our inflation rate. So that that's a concern that we hear a lot about. Yeah. And if I could just jump in on that, I mean, in this latest release that came out, food prices are up 13% on a year over year basis for grocery food. And so it's definitely increasing faster than general inflation right now. I want to go to this grocery thing because one of the big things I hear about is wheat and grain. Apparently, the United States has gotten a lot of that in our history from the Ukraine. They're kind of like the grain belt of Europe. But the U.S. is sitting on every single year. We just sit on stores and stores of grain. Why not release some of that grain like we're releasing some gas reserves to help us in the U.S. and bring down our costs now. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to argue against that. We kind of have a lot of interesting things going on in the economy. We have that with grain. We have, you know, we turn our corn into fuel instead of using it for food because we don't have enough fuel uh, for gasoline. Just a lot of interrelationships between these issues. And the other thing I'll point out is uh, transportation costs are an important cost that becomes embedded in food prices, right? So whether it's from Europe or whether it's from the large amount of food that we do grow here, especially in the Midwest in the U.S., transportation costs impact what we pay at the grocery store. What you're saying is when the gas prices were going up and up, our food prices are going up because the cost to get them shipped to us because the cost of gas has gone up, that's being tacked on to our food prices. Yeah, that's definitely a component, not the only piece, but that's a component of it. And I, again, these supply restrictions that we're seeing elsewhere in the world are also contributing to that. Susan? So it's a huge equation with a lot of unknowns. I mean, we, we do have the transportation costs that plays in the food. We have the, as has been mentioned, our U.S. soil, we're not growing the grains that we have grown in the past or they're being diverted for other uses. And then we have, I think that we have to talk about Mother Nature, too. I mean, we have some areas that are being flooded, some areas that are in drought, and that impacts crop production as well. I mean, it's kind of a a perfect storm of everything that can go wrong is, it feels like. I do want to take a break right there. When we come back, I want to go into why we're in this cycle right now. We've got inflation. We're trying to raise interest rates to bring down that inflation. But if we do that too quickly, it's going to cause us to go into recession. What's this cycle that's going on? So we'll be right back with Susan Spears. She is the CEO of UACPA and Phil Dean, who is the chief economist at the Gardner Policy Institute. Welcome back to Money Making Sense, the show that if it affects your life in any way money-wise. We're talking about it. Today we're talking about inflation and is it coming down at all because of the rising interest rates. Joining me today is Phil Dean. He is the chief economist at the Gardner Policy Institute, as well as Susan Spears, the CEO of UACPA. Phil, I do want to go into this cycle that we're in that we seem to repeat throughout history. Something happens, we react to it, 
It causes everything to go badly. So then we react to that, trying to fix it. And that fix doesn't always work. So right now we're in this inflation go out of control. The administration, any administration, anytime this happens, when you have inflation, they go, oh, we better start raising interest rates so people stop buying stuff so we can bring down inflation again. And then that pulls us into a recession. And then the recession happens. Oh, we got to lower the interest rate so we get people to buy stuff again. And then all of a sudden we're back up to inflation. So can't people be proactive instead of reactive? Yeah, that's that's a hard thing to do, right? And it, it's one of the challenges of public policy, trying to balance out the business cycle uh, of getting it right, right? So sometimes there's argument about whether the Federal Reserve, and with its monetary policy, meaning control of the money supply and interest rates, and the federal government, Congress and the president, you know, passing bills that spend money and, and tax, like getting that right is really hard. Some people think you shouldn't even try to do it at all. But even among those who support doing it, it's really hard to get it right. And and so in this case, you know, we had the pandemic hit. You had either government mandated shutdowns or government encouraged shutdowns uh, that reduced economic activity. And so in response to that, Federal Reserve decreased interest rates. So why do they do that? They decrease interest rates to get all of us to buy more things that we finance. So think homes, think cars, think business equipment, business factories, all these things that you don't just pay for month to month, that lower interest rates encourages us to buy more of those things. At the same time, the federal government also did very significant fiscal stimulus. And so this is the PPP loans. This is sending out checks to most households in the U.S., this is increases in unemployment insurance benefits, sending money to the state. That fiscal stimulus is, is I think, what was different this time around than many prior recessions, where fiscal stimulus for the U.S. was nearly 25% of the size of the entire U.S. economy. So on top of everything else the federal government normally does, 25% of the amount of a full year's worth of GDP got dumped into the economy. So there's all this money floating around. And this is where I think there was a bit of a misdiagnosis of the problem. I think early on in the pandemic, it, it is correct that we did have a drop in demand, that, that people were scared, they were hunkering down economically. But then some of the later fiscal stimulus, people were happy to spend money. They still had money left over from those first checks that they received. And the problem was all about supply. It was about constraints on getting goods from overseas. It was about labor constraints. It was all these supply side challenges. And we kept encouraging uh, as a country people to buy more at a time when we couldn't even fulfill the existing orders that were there. And so we essentially have all this money then floating in the economy, too much money t chasing too few goods. And that's what creates inflation. Now, coming out of that, the hope is that by increasing interest rates, that that starts to bring down that economic activity, that we start buying fewer homes and fewer cars and less business equipment to moderate economic growth. But there's a lot of back and forth in all of that. And getting that right is really, really hard. Obviously, the pandemic was not something that anybody saw coming to that extent, where pretty much the entire world shut down. But can't we put things in place to be more proactive 
in the future so that when these type of events happen, maybe hopefully not to that extreme, but we're not just constantly reacting. Because as you said, almost immediately when everything shut down, the Trump administration did the PPP loans and then we had our first round of the stimulus checks. And that was seemed to me to be very reactionary in how quickly it got set up. Yeah, and certainly at a household level, people should be prepared, right? Businesses should be prepared. At the same time, like like you mentioned, I don't know how you ever prepare for your business being shut down and being told it can't be open, or even prepare for the magnitude of what happened during the pandemic. So absolutely, like in, in your household finances, uh, in running a business, you definitely need to build buffers. Uh, buffers are an important part of business cycle management. At an economy-wide level, it's just hard to build buffers big enough to handle the magnitude of a pandemic, though. Susan, any thoughts on how we reacted when the pandemic started and what we're doing now as we're kind of dealing with the aftermath of it all? Yeah, I think we we did all hunker down. I mean, every you know, and I think that there was this big period of uncertainty where we didn't understand what was going on. How many people did we run into that thought, oh, this is like a 90-day deal, we'll be back up on our feet. All of a sudden, you know, we're two, two and a half years into this thing and we're finally coming out and we're trying to, we're figuring it out, we're learning how to manage it. To Phil's point, we were in a healthy economy at that point in time and people were kind of buying and selling what they wanted. We didn't see that supply chain really affect us at that point in time, but we were all brought down to our knees. And from a household level standpoint, our savings were not where they should have been. We did not, as consumers, our buffers were not where they needed to be. Now, we saw during the pandemic, household buffers, household savings increase a bit, partly because people buckled down and they weren't able to go out and spend. But that's where it needs to start, because from a policy standpoint, in our households, we can create that policy that says we're going to save X amount of money in the event this happens. But on a state level or a national level, that's a lot tougher to do. So if we can do that as individuals, when something happens like this again, we're better prepared as individuals, which will in turn help our local, state, and national economies. And if I can just jump in to follow up on that, like there are things... I used to work for the state prior to being at the Gardner Policy Institute uh, working on the state budget, and we do have healthy reserves at the state level. But at the same time, I think the state has about a billion dollars in rainy day funds there, which is you know somewhere around 10, 11, 12 percent of the state budget. So it's, I, I think, a fairly healthy reserve. Uh, but some of the numbers that, that you see coming out and, and the money businesses you know, wanting the state to help them out and throwing around numbers like $5 billion, $10 billion, $15 billion. You can't plan for something like that. And that's that's where I think that the federal government does have a very important role with kind of these cataclysmic events. But but even at the state level, we should be saving, and, and the state does save. Federal government goes without saying doesn't do that. They, even in good economic times, they spend much more than they bring in revenue, and that deficit spending is is a real challenge for us nationally long term. In my mind, that's a related but somewhat different issue than just the how you react during a severe event like a pandemic. Before we go to break, Susan, anything else on that topic? 
I think that it goes to show this is a topic that has so many outliers and so many layers of things that, that are so interconnected from, let's just say, state of Utah level. It's, it's tough at best. So, you know, the best thing that we can do as individuals is look at our own individual economic level and we can make those changes at our, at our level. We have that ability to do that. And hopefully maybe that rubs off as, as we move up those scales. But to Phil's point, I, I am grateful that Utah does have a good, physical, some good sound physical policy, and and we do have a good healthy rainy day fund. And I think that that's been one of our redeeming graces is we've been a state that's been able to weather some of these storms a lot better than other states in the nation. Yeah, definitely. I think it's in our state constitution, we have to have a balanced budget every year. Mm -hmm. So they can't just do that. Oh, we'll raise the debt ceiling and call it good like the federal government does. All right. Well, we need to take one more break. When we come back, we'll go into where are we headed in this inflation slash possible recessionary times. So we'll be right back with Phil Dean. He is the chief economist at the Kemsey Gardner Policy Institute and also Susan Spears, the CEO of Utah Association of CPAs. Welcome back to Money Making Sense, the show that if it affects your life in any way money-wise, we're talking about it. Today, we're talking about if we are staying with inflation, is it leveling out? Is it coming down? Has the Fed raising interest rates done any good? Joining me today is Phil Dean. He's the chief economist at the Gardner Policy Institute and also Susan Spears, the CEO of UACPA. All right, Phil. So last month for July, it was zero inflation from the previous month. So basically the prices overall did not raise anymore from June. Right. But if you take this year compared to previous year, we're still up eight and a half percent from where we were a year ago. Do I have that right? Okay. Yep. So do we think we're going to not have any more inflation in the next couple of months? And this is, we have to flatten out before you can, you know, start sliding down or do we think it's a hopeless cause? I do think we're, we'll see what we call disinflation, which is inflation slowing down. It doesn't mean the prices are actually dropping. It just means that the inflation's not as high as it was before. So I do think we will see moderation in that inflation rate over time. You know, if you look at the Federal Reserve's projections, they kind of have this target of 2% inflation. And their projection is it may take us about two years to get to that point. So I don't think it, I don't think inflation is going away overnight. I think it's still with us for a bit. Uh, I hope we've peaked. Uh, I don't, I don't know that for sure we have. There's still a lot of concern that, that I have about the economy in, in terms of supply chain issues still not being resolved. You see China and a zero COVID policy and what impacts that have the Russia Ukraine situation continuing to cause issues. Uh, what disruptions that's going to cause for Europe. So I don't think it's a slam dunk that inflation is coming down immediately, Um, but that that's our own internal projection that that we do think inflation is going to moderate throughout this year and then continue to moderate next year. Susan, the Federal Reserve had plans in September to meet again and raise the interest rate. But today, after these numbers came out, there was some discussion in the newsroom, which I think was overly hopeful 
that based on that we had zero inflation in July, they were like, oh, well, and they meet in September, they may not have to raise interest rates again. And I, I thought that was overly hopeful. But what do you, what do you think? You know, I thought the same thing. I thought, oh, you're, you're being a little too premature because we have to look at the trending that, that's moving forward. And to Phil's point, we're still expecting to, the next couple of years to see some of these inflationary problems. And then we have the geopolitical issues that are going on as well with Ukraine and Russia, with China and Taiwan. We still have supply chain issues. We're still having trouble getting things over the water. So... I don't think that I don't think that we can say because one month gave us hope that this is going to solve the problem for the next couple of months or even the next couple of years. But they could possibly, if they were originally thinking we'll raise a, the interest another three quarters of a point, they may go, well, we only need to raise it half of a point. I don't know that I want to touch that one. I mean, they could. I mean, they can do about whatever they want. But I I think that it behooves the reserve to really take that deep deep dive and project, relook at their projections and see what they see happening in in the next couple of months and the next couple of years. It's a tough, this is a tough one to solve. Phil, was it better to do what the Fed is doing right now? They have plans at the beginning of the year. They said, well, we're going to raise the interest rates five or six times for 2022. Is it better to just do these incremental interest rate raises throughout the year instead of just one great big one? I mean, what would have happened if we just had interest rates go up 2%? That would have been better if they had started with that in the first place. So the Federal Reserve a year ago, when inflation, you know, it was kind of in the April-May time frame of 2021, when inflation really started showing up, and they kept saying, oh, it's okay, we're not going to, like, we don't need to respond to this, um, it, it's transitory, uh, and, and then it was like, well, maybe it's not transitory, but we're still going to hold off on doing interest rate increases, um, it's... If they had started early, they could have done much more incremental increases, uh, but they failed to do that, and now they're behind inflation, and I think they have to continue increasing. I'd be very surprised uh, if they only do 50 basis points. I, I think they're looking at a 75 basis point increase um, probably at least for the next two meetings. I guess, I guess we'll see where it goes, but, but part of the challenge they have is monetary policy, this influence of interest rates on the economy shows up with a lag. It doesn't hit the, the economy instantaneously. And so they're having to look out, you know, 6, 12, 18 months to see these effects. And because they let inflation get away from them in the first place, I'd be very surprised if they slow down the pace, especially given how strong labor markets are, the half million jobs that were added to the U.S. economy. That means that interest rate increases so far aren't negatively impacting employment. And and so I think as long as that continues to be the case, they're going to continue to be aggressive in those interest rate increases. But what would have happened if when they finally decided to go, oh, <laughs> we can't put this off anymore, we're going to have to raise interest rates. What would have happened if they just went, it's a 2% hike? Why couldn't they have done that? They could have. Uh, you know, th their hope is to achieve what they're calling a soft landing right? Not dramatically impacting the markets. I think they probably should have done larger than what they did when they started. 
because they didn't even start uh, with a 75 basis point increase yeah, increases. Anyway, these are some of the things that they could have done, but they didn't because they didn't do things early. I do think it's better to do them uh, incrementally to, to minimize the shock to the economy. But it's I think they need to continue to be aggressive with those incremental increases, which are big increments, by the way. By any historical standard, they've tried to be much more moderate as they start increasing interest rates. They they tend to do it steadily, but at a slower pace. And now that they're behind on inflation, they're doing it much more aggressively. We were talking in the break about some of the the checks that went out to people during the pandemic. A lot of people just instead of using it to spend, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, they used it to pad their savings account Phil, can you give us some of those numbers and why inflation could have been so much worse than it actually is? I'll go back to Susan's point where, where she was saying households were not saving enough prior to the pandemic. I think that's accurate. Uh, during the pandemic, households saved a lot. So at, at some of the peak times, in part, kind of forced savings because a bunch of places were shut down. But people were saving a third of their entire income for some quarters, which which is a huge number. And now those savings rates have fallen back down to pre-pandemic and even actually a little bit below pre-pandemic, where right now people are saving on average about 5% of their disposable income. So there's kind of this overhang of savings that are sitting there still in, in people's accounts. So at a national level, overall, money sitting in people's accounts was a at about $1 trillion. Now it's at about $4.5 trillion. And I keep expecting that number to come down with inflation, but it keeps increasing, which is fascinating to me. So it's people are saving, and it'll be interesting to track whether that sticks over time uh, or if people do start drawing down those savings because of the perceived risk, keeping a lot more in the bank account than they used to. Susan, do you think that the savings not going down and actually increasing, I know grocery prices are going up, but so is the cost of buying a house, buying a car, and with interest rates rising, maybe people are not using their savings to buy these higher-end items. Do you think that's why maybe savings just continue to go up? No, I'm really not sure. I mean, you listen to the chatter. It could be that, you know what, I've got to save. I've got to be able to put 15, 20% down on my house to get a good rate. But there's a housing shortage. People need vehicles, but there are very few vehicles to be found. I think that, you know, there's a little bit of chatter um, with inflation. Oh, we better, we need to be putting money away for that rainy day. But we're also seeing, I think you have to look at the different economic levels as well. I mean, we, we do know that those that were able to sock a little more money away with the stimulus payments are having to draw down on those just to put the gas in their cars and, and food on the table. So for me, it, I, I would like to take a deeper dive or a little run through the weeds to see really what that savings rate looks like among different economic levels of income. I personally think the ones that that needed it the most weren't able to pad their savings account because they they were the ones in retail industry and also hospitality. Restaurants were closed, hotels were closed, so they didn't have that income coming in like a lot of the rest of us who could still work from home and get a paycheck. Like myself, I was able to work from home, but I didn't have to spend gas anymore. 
it used to be 35 minutes each direction for me. So I was filling up my tank at least every five days or so. I didn't have to do that for almost two years. So I myself put away a lot of money, but other people who didn't have my type of job didn't have that luxury. They still had to try to hit the pavement and get some money coming in. That's one of the interesting things, especially about they're kind of, I think we've had different effects early in the pandemic compared to later in the pandemic. So early in the pandemic, when we looked at this at the state level, actually most people that went on unemployment insurance because they got laid off got a raise. That extra $600 a week benefit, so think about that, that's $15 an hour, and that's on top of the regular unemployment insurance benefit. So especially early in the pandemic, when those enhanced unemployment insurance benefits were there, a lot of low-income people actually, even though they weren't working, got a raise by doing that. And then that's phased out over time. And and that's where I think you are seeing some of the the impacts more on the low-income side. And as you pointed out, the the fiscal stimulus wasn't targeted only to those who are in need. Like, I was fortunate to remain employed uh, during the pandemic. They sent me a check, which I went out and bought some stuff with it, which was fine, but it wasn't a necessity for me in the same way it may have been for other people. And th- that's where I think some of the policy failings occurred, is n- not in government taking on the role of helping people, but kind of uh, helping people that didn't really need help. Yeah, I was fit to be tied when I got a check that I did not need. I would much rather, I don't have a problem with the government helping the people that need the help, but I wasn't one of them. And I really wish they would have just sent my check to somebody else who actually was in dire straits. Yep. Susan? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that we there was a little bit of a free-for-all there, and I think that they were so concerned that this was going to be a huge emergency that we forgot to put some stop gaps in there and, and uh, step back a minute and look at who really who really needed those economic impact payments or those stimulus payments. I think that we're seeing some impact from those now as now we deal with inflation, whether it's from the stimulus payments or from the PPP loans. There's tons we can talk about inflation, but is there anything that we need to talk about? Like, where are we going now in the future or lessons that we can learn from what happened in the past? Well, I think that we need to to spend some time even on our own, just understanding some of those basic economics of, of how things work. I think a lot of us are ignorant on that. So I think that, and I think that if we bolster up our own financial well-being, you know, so that we can weather these storms on an individual basis, that does a lot of good. I mean, there's not a lot we can do at a, let's say, a county, city, state, or national level, but there's a lot we can do as it comes to our own economic well-being. Yeah, and I, I want to echo that. There, you know, I, I think there are like broad-based public policy, uh, good things that happen, and definitely failures that also happen that that we're reaping the benefits of, and hopefully, those in those positions are uh, learning from those lessons. So, like the Federal Reserve, I'm pretty sure they're going to be pretty aggressive when they start to see economic recovery occurring out of a future recession. That they're going to be pretty aggressive on interest rates where this time they intentionally said, we're going to let inflation run a little bit hot. Like they were public about that. And obviously, like they succeeded at that, unfortunately, (laughs) uh, more than they wanted, I think. But 
taking it down to the household or, or somebody running a business, like you need to build buffers. You need all sorts of different buffers built in. So that's savings accounts. It's thinking about things in your budget that you can cut out if you need to. That, you know, maybe you have some extra subscriptions that are kind of a nice to have, but they're not necessary. So kind of be thinking about buffers that you're going to use as you manage the ups and downs of life. And I also think about firms, the importance of buffers. As a country, I think very much got on this just-in-time kick that failed during the pandemic. I've thought many times about how much different, how much money different companies could have made if they'd actually had things in stock and nobody else did. And I, I think a lot of companies are thinking about that a lot more, uh, kind of about resiliency in terms of supply chain, not just being reliant on a single provider out of China uh, that can shut down your whole business if that piece doesn't come through. So I, I think there's a lot of takeaways, both at the individual level, at the business level and economy wide, that hopefully we we don't repeat the same mistakes. Now, honestly, what will probably happen is we maybe make different mistakes than we did <laughs> and, and learn from those. But I do think there are a lot of, uh, across the board, different lessons that we can all take away coming out of the pandemic. Well, great. Thank you so much to my guest, Phil Dean. He's the chief economist at Kemsey Gardner Policy Institute and also Susan Spears, the CEO of UACPA. Gone over basically inflation. We think it might be leveling out just a little bit, especially if the feds keep raising their interest rates like they plan to do in September. And hopefully we'll see some prices start dropping even further as the year goes on. Thanks for listening. You can email me with any questions or topics you want to hear about at hkelly at ksl.com. That's h-k-e-l-l-y at ksl.com. And because this is Money Making Sense, you can subscribe for free on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, and you'll never miss another episode. Thanks for being a Money Making Sense listener. Follow your common sense on the social media. Money Making Sense on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.